Hey, do you like what we do, but want to hear it in Boston? Well, the fucking Avengers, the thing with fucking Chris Evans, you know he went to school around here and shit, right? He fucking grew up around here. Dude, that fucking house in fucking Knives Out Kid that he was in, that's in fucking Weston, Massachusetts. I drove by it. My uncle, my uncle, okay, he's a fucking contractor, all right? He drives a truck. It's got ladders and shit on it, right? He has fucking pictures of Chris Evans working on that fucking movie and that that asshole Rian Johnson that made that fucking stupid Star Wars movie I hated so much. That guy right yeah he was fucking there too and oh a fucking james bond kid oh shit i fucking saw james bond and shit i had to send a picture of that to my fucking aunt she was like oh my god bring him over here i'm gonna fuck him so fucking hard and i was like auntie we're on a fucking group chat with ma i don't fucking care ma can come over here and fucking fuck him too for all i care and then we went on and on and on and everybody was fucking and now i know too much about my family kid then you should check out this week's sponsor the Chipman Brothers Tangent, talking about literally anything, be it nerd news or the lasting trauma of Catholic school. Chris and Bob Chipman have you covered. Listen to the Chipman Brothers Tangent on your favorite podcasting site today. Welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? It is okay. I'm feeling a little, I don't know, middling, but ups and downs. How are you doing? Uh, all in all, pretty good. I survived the week-long heat wave that we had here that was horrible, because when it's 100 degrees and 90% humidity, it's Satan's asshole. Also... A little quick side thing. Before we started recording, I made a Emperor's Groove joke at something that Ulrich said, and I want to have it on recording because I think this is really funny. My girlfriend refers to the time of the month as Cusco because he's in all red. He shows up with a loud bang and makes everything about him. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect. Yeah, I think it's hilarious, and I just wanted to have it recorded, so... <laughs> I no notes. Having that on the internet. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yes. Anyways, no, that totally turned the. Ah, oh, now we're back on track. Anyway, speaking of things that are on track, our patrons, the people that give us money, which I found out that apparently being a guest on a podcast is a highly lucrative uh, thing, if you are in certain podcasting circles, namely the crypto promotion podcast oh i as an engineer i feel a little awkward about hearing that but i'm just gonna move on so i just saw that article it's like being a guest on a podcast can be highly lucrative and i'm like where the fuck's our money then <laughs> anyways speaking of our money here it is our patrons they are pam galley marky chris chipman river galley krug arthur crane kevin vay brendan agnew john riddles kit kenny seth decker don lucy patrick anderson carson mel scott ribbon derek takati and peter cook now if you'd like to join that illustrious legion head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields 25 cents an episode gets you early access to all our content and a potential to be on this very show and a quick thing before we get into the actual topic. Also, I just remembered, I don't know if you ca- caught this, but Woonvog just texted me like two minutes ago telling me that the live-action Netflix avatar has cast Appa from Kim's Convenience as Iroh. And while I have problems like with like 
certain things, that casting sounds perfect, and I just wanted to bring it up. So. Yeah, I wish I knew the actor's name off the top of my head. I remember that. It's like, that's good casting. I don't have a lot of faith in the series, but that's good casting. Agreed. Anyway, as this is, you know, I was about to do one of my, like, as this is Geeks of Grimdark theme. This isn't Geeks of Grimdark. This is actually oh, our regular show. Lord of the Rings month. Exactly. Lord of the Rings month. Woo. I don't know when this idea was decided on, but here we are. So <laughs> wanted to talk about Lord of the Rings and saw that they were going to have that be relative to searches is like let's make a month out of it. okay well then to kick off our lord of the rings month we have a guest to talk with us today feel free to introduce yourself greetings uh thank thank you for having me on it's uh it's been a minute but it's good always good to talk to you guys brendan agnew yeah. in case you didn't read the top part <laughs> yes yes greetings and i am extraordinarily uh extraordinarily pumped to be discussing my favorite story ever told yeah, yeah, that feels about right. <laughs> <laughs> Hyperbole doesn't exist here. Anyway, so Ulrich, you want to give us our very specific Lord of the Rings topic for discussion today? Well, first, I'm going to start with a little bit of preamble, icebreaker, what have you, that I'm hoping will prove a through line for all our guests and all these episodes. And you don't have to answer now if you don't have an answer. But if you were in Lord of the Rings, what race or realm would you want to be part of? Oh, I, Hobbit for fucking life. Yeah, I feel, like, I feel like if you don't say Hobbit, then you haven't thought about it enough. So, I, I, yeah, mean, I thought about it a lot. Oof. It's not a Hobbit. Well, just, we've talked about this before. It feels like when you, the older you get and the more, like, oh, man. I know we've talked about this before because there's a thing where, like, choosing the other races are kind of like power fantasies to a degree. But when you get right down to how they live their lives, Hobbits just generally have the best lives. So, I guess. I mean, you can kind of feel that that like that's Tolkien's home team. Oh, it's 100 uh, I mean... <laughs> is. Tolkien was a hobbit. <laughs> oh yeah, and and honestly, like I've I've always like had fun with the other characters, but but Sam's whole like one small garden of a free gardener. It's like, yeah, nope that that's that's always been like that that's just me. That's where that's where it is. Yeah, but so there are people who live in an idyllic little New Zealand-ish village who eat and smoke all day, and that's about and it. And drink. And drink. And drink. Yeah. So, like, what else do you want? <laughs> Power. Excitement. I mean, I'm going to surprise, surprise I went with an Urukai. All right. Good Interesting. for you. <laughs> well, like, I thought about long and hard. Like, I'm existing in a pre-industrialized civilization that has does not have indoor plumbing, that does not have basic dental, and that magic is leaving this world. So, it's about to get a lot worse. So, I'm going to go with the race that seems to be enjoying themselves the most. I mean, I would still say that's probably hobbits, but uh, but okay. Have you not? Do you not know what happens to the Shire? Yeah, at one point, are we saying where specifically you're putting yeah, yourself in the story? Ideally, this is in the event of Lord of the Rings. If we were at any point in Lord of the Rings, I'm going to be an elf in like the Second Age when everything was awesome. All right, I mean, because if the answer is during the event, or if the the question is during the events of Lord of the Rings. I'm going to say, what's a town that didn't get involved in the events Let's of Lord of the Rings? Let's just say the Third Age. So. And I, I feel like there's not. And that's kind of, you know, I was thinking about it. It's like, everyone's like, oh, I'd be an elf. I'm like, no. Magic is leaving the world and everything kind of sucks for you. Like, no, no. Urukai. I'm big. I'm strong. I'm going to die. But I'm not going to live to see the end of this, you know, <laughs> conflict. Uh, put me on another continent then if that's the... Axel's <laughs> just getting on a boat like nope nope fuck this fuck this fuck all of this <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much just noping out alright I understand we'll see if uh, what our other guests have to say as Lord of the Rings months proceeds alright now on to the main topic this is an idea we've kind of had rattling around for a while 
and ultimately realized was best served by Lord of the Rings. And that is a discussion on cinematic battles and how the Lord of the Rings really cracks the formula for big, epic, coherent cinematic battles. And before we get into it, I want to say that there is a channel that I will talk about my suggestions of the week called Cinefix on YouTube that did an entire video essentially breaking down how the Battle at Helm's Deep specifically is a masterclass in shooting army scale action set pieces. And Interesting. Yeah, and uh, I completely agree with basically everything they say. They taught me a lot of ways to think about it. I'll mention it probably several times throughout this discussion, but just saying that that's there, and if you find this conversation interesting, go look it up. It's easy to find. <laughs> I'm curious, because I have my own theories, because before this, I went back and rewatched The Two Towers, because that's my personal favorite and what I think is the best of the trilogy. And not only does that movie still hold up, but it's like, no, I feel confident in my theory. All right, Brendan, since you're our guest, how about we give you the platform first to give the the opening statements, as it were? Well, I mean, uh, what, what the Lord of the Rings just absolutely um, cemented was like, so what if we just had two groups of people crashing into each other? And that that was what everyone should have always done, because that's the best thing to see in a big battle scene, right? Right? Because they were able to... Yeah, no, like, what, what works about this is they approached action as storytelling on basically every level. And so like, it's not just that you're dealing with someone who, you know, wrote, you know, you know, Tolkien doesn't revel in battle scenes, but he writes battles and you kind of like go, okay, yeah, no, I, I see how that, I, I see how that like came from the mind of someone who was in the trenches of World War One. Um, but then like what Jackson does is, just he approached a very practical way of capturing this that turns pretty much every step of the battle into this is problem solving this is narrative problem solving given these you know constraints and so everything feels you know grounded to a certain extent and then you're just following characters through a story and nothing feels like oh this is just the part where something happens so that we can use some special effects it's all just from micro detail to macro detail all incredibly important to the narrative and yeah. with that being said let's take a moment to and since you just rewatched it recently Ulrich, you can correct me and while there are many action beats throughout lord of the rings there seems to be what three primary action uh, war battle beats and one in each movie, maybe two in Fellowship, if I count Mines of Moria as well. But it's in Fellowship, it's like the ending sequence with the Urukai raiding party. In yep. in Two Towers, it's Helm's Deep, and yep. in Return of the King, it's the battle for Gundor. Like there are battle scenes that are not these three, but these are like the three big war set pieces. Am I right? Well, the, yeah, and like the battle for Gondor is like twelve smaller set pieces that stack and interlock and build and intersect and then the battle of the black gates its own thing but yeah no that's basically if you're like if i were presenting a thesis on why these movies are the best cinematic battles i would lay those three down and go okay here we go but what's funny because if we lay those three down it creates an interesting ramping kind of thing to me because the the urukai raiding battle is it is definitely a battle but it's primarily a an excuse to split up the party, as it were, and have little character moments, particularly the Boromir moment, while the battle's happening largely kind of in the background. Then Helm's Deep 
like the battle is entirely the focus it's also much bigger it's much more regimented and organized than the skirmish in the forest it's a siege as it were and then as you just put it the battle for gundor is actually broken up into skirmishes and siege is much longer is much bigger has a lot more moving parts and i would argue because of that it's actually a little bloated in comparison i consider the helm's deep battle the one of the best battles ever put on film period so it creates an interesting like we start off from a relatively understandable place and then we just get bigger over time yeah and real quick i kind of want to shift us to talking about if anyone has any thoughts i have thoughts i'll go to you guys about the other end of this in the battle of the five armies which was the biggest cinematic battle and kind of the follow-up to this movie with The Hobbit. Like I said, I have thoughts. I'll let you guys go first if you want to talk about The Battle of the Five Here, Armies. Here, I can get this out really quick. I didn't watch Battle of the Five Armies, so... Oh, well, then... <laughs> I watched I watched, the, I watched the, the first and second one, and I didn't care enough to watch the third one, so... If you look at everything that the Lord of the Rings trilogy does right in terms of how it builds to, like, escalating action set pieces that hit emotional scale that match the visible scale like you just look at everything that return of the king does as as bloated and goofy as it gets like those emotional beats are fucking meteors and then you look at battle of the five armies and it's like oh okay the the you just approached this completely ass backwards yeah no i wa i was disappointed with desolation of small but i'm like but I've been waiting forever to see the Battle of the Five Armies and Dwarven Armies, and this one will be good because Jackson knows how to shoot big, epic battles. And to me, that remains my go-to example of if you want... If, what defines a bad cinematic battle? Like, everything about that is just wrong. Well, okay, so there's a word that Cinefix taught me, because again, like I said, I'll mention them several times, called gestalt are are you too familiar with this term in regards to film yes okay brendan yeah yeah okay sorry i just didn't hear you so for anyone who doesn't know gestalt is safe for our audience yeah yeah but for anyone who doesn't know gestalt is an idea of when you're shooting a scene of making things chaotic by basically having just so much stuff happening that you can't focus on any one particular idea kind of like the idea almost like like a white static, but just with swords and spears and whatnot. And there are some cases where a battle sequence can make this work. A great example of using Gestalt to its proper usage is actually in the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones, which is, for some interesting ways, an inverse of the of the Helm's Deep battle, which I might talk about later. Because in that situation, it's about literally the chaos of the battle affecting one soldier that we're following. But generally speaking, in film any kind of film, I would say, clarity is better than chaos. The same reason why I tend to like, for instance, Chinese cinema when it comes to my action films, because they tend to use more wide shots and, and clear or clear cinematography as opposed to gestalt action, which you could also apply to things like shaky cam fighting. So, And I have not seen Battle of the Fire Armies, but from what I've heard of people talking about it, that is one of the primary issues, is it relies a lot on gestalt not effectively. There's a lot going on there. And I'm going to bounce around. I'm going to reference other really good cinematic battles from other movies that don't well, like uh, Game of Thrones with Battle of the Bastards or Hard Home, using similar uh, techniques that we see with Lord of the Rings that both work there, though maybe not to the same extent. Well, 
here, just so I can get this out of the way and not keep hinting at it. And again, Cinefix has two videos to describe what I'm about to describe, and they describe it much better. So if you hear me say this and you find this interesting, go look up Cinefix's videos on what I'm about to say. Helm's Deep. One of the main things that makes Helm's Deep work is the fact that it uses what Cinefix calls pyramid action. The idea that one action from one force leads to a consequence on a wider section of the battle that then causes a consequence to a wider section below that that causes a consequence to a wider section below that. What that ends up doing is making it so that our main characters feel like they have direct control, or at least direct effect, on this large battle. A simple example they give is the idea of the Urukai who's going f with the bombs to, uh, to try to blow up the, the tower. So we've got this one section of, or sorry, blow up the, the wall. So we've got this one section of the battle, the wall here. We have Legolas with his arrow and the orc with the, the fuse. So that we got this one little moment here between essentially two characters. One's an instigator and one is the person, the target. Whether this activity, each of them has a, uh, a desire, which one wins will have a direct effect on that section. So in this case, the guy with the torch, the orc, wins that causes the bombs to go off, which then causes the section of wall to explode. That has an effect on the whole wall, because now we've got a breach in the wall, so we've got an uh, army coming through that, which has then an effect on the entire battle, because now the line is broken, and the enemy can come in from behind, essentially. You can actually trace almost any time in Helm's Deep, there's a close-up on one of the main characters, and you can kind of trace the effect of their decisions on the greater battle. It's actually very well done in this regard. As an example, the Battle of the Bastards does the same thing in reverse, where a large effect of the army has an effect on, or a large action of the army has a consequence on a smaller section of the army, which has a consequence on a smaller section until it's the effect on Jon Snow. So anyway, this idea, again, I'm very summarizing a lot, but I think it's a very important to how a large-scale action sequence is shot, what your decision on how to do this is. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And and one of the things that you really have to sort of nail when you're approaching that scale of action and trying to knock down those dominoes is, like, you have to let your audience see the pyramid. And one of the, one of the things that Jackson does, it's like a similar trick that John McTiernan does when he makes action movies, is he gives the audience almost, like as much information as possible, like more information about what's happening than basically any one character has. Like we see Saruman and, um, and Wormtongue going over the gunpowder thing. So as soon as we see the cult, like the big cauldron full of the shit and the torch, we know exactly what that means. And so like every time something happens because Jackson is, is showing you this, this whole canvas and like giving you all this information, like, everything like the the audience is able to digest that like immediately so you're never you never felt like you're never lost you're like oh wait what what where was that how did that character get down there because you've you've already seen like all those steps mm -hmm. no that was my first kind of point i was going to touch on is jackson understands the importance of establishing geography and scale and i will use helm's deep helm's deep we see helm's deep we see the gaping wall, we see all this, so we have an idea like, okay, this is what this fortress castle looks like. We see when the Orakai are marching up, so like, okay, we see just how massive and big this army is. 
Well, a simple shot that combines my idea, or the thing I just said with the thing you just said, is the walkway up to the gate. Because it makes it very clear with the camera movement that we see, okay, there's a battle happening at the wall, and there's a huge amount of the Urukai with their shield walls coming up this walkway. And we haven't reached the gate yet, but but Jackson shows us, here is army, here is the gate, now, here is Aragorn and Gimli, and whether they can affect this section here is going to have a greater effect on the battle because obviously just like with the wall if they make a breach here that's a breach in the defense so same combines the two ideas (laughs) yeah but in each of these battles all of them you know the geography you know where everyone's at so you have a clear picture in your mind like okay this is what's happening this is where everyone's is and a big part of this was jackson had set up and planned these things with little plastic army men Hmm. like he had the bigature of Helm's Deep, and they had all the little army men set up in the battlefield. So we go, okay, and this is how it's going to go. And it flows. And it reminds me of the conversation we had with Graham McNeil, where you described his battle writing like waves breaking on a beach, mm-hmm. and how this is structured up action scene, action scene, battle, cut to something else. Battle scene, battle scene, battle scene, cut to something else. So you get these big rising actions that you're into, and then it pauses and it goes off to do something else for a little bit. So you're like, wait a second, but what's going on with the battle? And what this does is it gives the battle a sense of time so it doesn't feel rushed. Well, it also makes it, because it also makes it feel like, at least with Helm's Deep, almost like you can, it's funny that you say Jackson played out with with essentially miniatures because you can see that, I think, it comes through in the sequence. It almost feels like a chess match. You're literally seeing move, counter move, move counter move so you always have this feeling of the battle at large the reason why for instance the battle of the bastards is the opposite is because the intention is on one soldier so you actually don't see the greater image of the battle but that battle works because it's not about the battle and the tactics it's about the effect on one person so it's interesting that you do and you don't like you have a couple really good flyover shots and get like bigger scopes of the battlefield and a sense of where it's going. Yeah, but I just bring that up because I feel like the purpose is different there. Like yes. the purpose of that battle isn't to make you feel like this is a tactical match between like two chess people. It's more like watch the effect of war on one very good soldier, but still one stuck in this mire. Whereas But they both work in you know where the battle is progressing the whole way through. Yeah, which, which is, is funny because kind of I feel time. I feel like that's why the Return of the King, Battle of Gondor, uh, I don't want to say it doesn't work as well because it does work, but it works very differently. It's almost like it's not one pyramid; it's multiple pyramids, and because it's broken up over more sections, there also doesn't feel like okay. With Helm's Deep, Aragorn may not be quote unquote like the top guy, but the 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 sequence makes you feel like he's the one playing chess against Saruman. Whereas Return of the King doesn't have that same feeling at all of like active players it's more like a sequence of skirmishes that build up to the thing at least until the war elephants show up <laughs> or what do they have a name uh, Mumikil. Mumikil, thank you so anyway it, it's just interesting because it becomes more like a how do i put this battle of gundor feels more like a war whereas helm's deep feels like a battle as in battle well, gundor different types of battles the, uh the attack on the party is a skirmish and it's very frenetic, and it's very one-on-one. Uh, Gondor is very much this big siege, and this can they hold out? They're gonna win. All hope is lost. And Gondor is this big, long tug of war of, 
oh, they're winning. Oh, no, something else. Oh, they're winning. Oh, no, something else. It's Helm's Deep, but on a much grander scale. Like, let me give a quick example of a battle that I don't think works for similar reasons that we're talking about. Regardless of any other qualities of the movie, I feel like the final battle of Braveheart doesn't work for these reasons. Oh, that's a hot mess. Yeah, because it there's no sense of geography, as Orcus put it multiple times. It's just kind of spears and swords and and gore and whatnot. There's also yep. no sense that anyone is in control or direction of what's happening. Yep. And there's also no vibe of like chaos affecting one person, which is what you can do if you're going away from the control direction thing. So all the things that we, in the last six or seven minutes, we've talked about are good things in Helm's Deep don't exist in the Braveheart battle. And that's, I think, a good point of comparison. I would go even more contemporary and say the final battle in Endgame. Endgame is a really good example because they're, they engage in a, in a similar sort of here are some extremely low points and here are huge high points to counteract those low points and here's where we're stacking these up and stacking these up. Um, and like, I, I still think like the, the final battle in Endgame is like functional, but I think one of the things that um, works against Gondor is with Helm's Deep, you have a very clear like line in the sand of like this is this is what we have to hold on to. Once this once this line is crossed, like that's that's it. And maybe we've got Gandalf coming like probably, but then when you move up to Return of the King, you have not only are you following the Rohirrim in the way that you weren't necessarily following Aomer and Gandalf. So like you're you're seeing them get closer. So it's not like you know it it's not like this sort of like big final surprise it's it's another step in the act and because gondor has like the multiple levels and the multiple walls that they can fall back to there's just like a okay so this is a bad thing but we can still come back this is a bad thing we and it's it's almost like it's almost like playing football instead of basketball there's just a lot more to wade through yeah i i will say that that's probably why it doesn't it's not quite as coherent for me but that's i I feel like the Battle for Gundor is just ambitious. And not to say Helm's Deep wasn't, and Helm's Deep was super ambitious, but I feel like the Battle for Gundor is just even more ambitious. And then, and as true in any film, I'd rather something be super ambitious and not quite hit than not be ambitious at all. And again, Gundor does work. I'm just saying it has some more cracks in it, comparatively. Well, yeah, and that's why I will always say that Helm's Deep's the high water mark of the movie. Real quick, um, though, to, to touch on... Well, you said, at least to get my, my two cents in, the endgame battle works for me because it does one particular trick, which is having a singular point of intense focus. That entire action sequence is built around the gauntlet. So no matter what else is happening, no matter what uh, else is going on, your focus is always on where is the gauntlet in this sea of chaos. It's, so it's not concerned with things like geography of battle or tactics or strategy because there's not really forces leading the battles this is more like a frenetic fight over a single item and we're following that one item's progression through hands to different people now what your tastes are means that cannot work as well for you but i'm saying as a as a battle set piece with that being its conceit that works for me yeah i'm not saying it doesn't work but we compare it to like the first the battle of new york and avengers which tees off all these marks very well. Yes, but we that were... one was about tactics. I mean, the whole point of having 
Cap be like, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's how this works, here's how this combines. That was like its purpose was to be, here's how this team that just came together functions together as an effective military unit. So different purpose. Yeah, what I'm saying is it works on all the levels. It works as a showcase for these uh, heroes' powers, and it works as just a, this is a cool cinematic battle. And that's not an easy thing to pull off. Yeah. Which we kind of see, it's like, Endgame has this cool thing where we have all these armies and they're fighting in the background. Because, like, it doesn't even go, the battle in Wakanda is a really good, big, epic battle, but not great. But it still kind of works top to bottom. Yeah, I'd actually say, like, as far as, oh, and I feel like I'm going to paint a target on myself for this, as far as cinematic battles in the MCU not working i actually have more of a problem with the one in black panther and again i love yes. black panther it's amazing but the the, the quote-unquote battle at the end of black panther feels like it has other than the actual fight between killmonger and black panther himself the actual battle outside which is mostly broken down in a sequence of character beats which is not a bad thing again the movie is great but as far as the, looking at it as a battle never feels like it has weight or specif specificity to it Okay, so I'm going to talk about my second point in my theory of why Lord of the Rings battles work. And that is the blending of practical and CGI in that the charge of the Rohirrim feels like a massive cavalry charge because at its core, there's 20 dudes on horses in armor that are then digitally duplicated outwards. So your eye recognizes the physical motion of the real people and then transfers that onto everybody else. Whereas if we look at the Battle of the Five Armies, where none of the armor was real, none of the people were real, it was just big, weightless blobs washing against each other. And that's where you think, like, uh, Battle of the Bastards Hardhome, you feel the physical crunch when people push into each other, and you get that sense of claustrophobia that you get in the Battle of the Bastards when they're closing in. I definitely agree that that, like, is a huge part of why that works and you know i think it also ties into how jackson like practically approached this you know like planning things with the you know with the miniatures and everything um it, it he had so much like pre-production leeway that he could figure out okay we're going to need to logistically wrangle like you know uh dozens to hundreds of horse people get them in armor and do this thing and like i'm going to have you know time to like build these ridiculous models and we've got time to like figure this out and then do this in the computer like he like th there is there's an insane amount of like time that he had to like work this out that you know you you just can't do that now not not no. just because like no one makes movies like this now but like no one's got that kind of time like if you get like six weeks of pre-production well you're you're that's that's a gravy train you're never yeah, getting no. that again <laughs> there's lord of the rings only exists in the narrow time that it was made with There's the also, narrow conditions that it received. You bringing up the, the charge makes me think of something that I, I never considered before. I think it's interesting that Helm's Deep, as a battle, takes all this time to flush out very specific details of what's going on throughout the entirety of the battle up until it seems all is lost. Then Gandalf and Rohan shows up and it's just wrapped up. Now, I bring this up because it actually works, and it works for an interesting narrative reason, because the whole battle is at night. 
literally the showing up of Rohan is the break of dawn. It's the light over the ridge, the metaphor of the night encroaching and then the day sweeping away the, the night is very literalized. Thus, the actual details of the the horse the horse charge taking out essentially the rest of the army are not important they made it through the night that is narratively what is important so like you get what i mean i'm not even sure what how to phrase this properly like i'm just kind of doing this off the cuff so no that that makes sense there's yeah it's it's elemental and and then like one of the things that you know again if if you're looking at how it compares to you know which again i think um you know, the Battle of Gondor freaking rules. Like, most directors wish they could do that. And Peter Jackson's, yeah, that's my B-side. But but still, like, um, again, you're doing the Rohan arrives at the, the break of dawn. But because that's not where things end, like, we have to wade through the mud, you know, with this particular version of that. And, you know, that affords some really awesome opportunities because just that, you know, Theoden's charge is, you know, transcendent. But it, it is still, like, you know, it's it's a thing that that's like, it, it's a different approach to how to uh, like follow this beat in a somewhat similar way. It's just interesting to me that they had in the charge, right? Cause that is that is the charge at the end of Helm's Deep, right? That's what it's called. Uh, yeah, and and in the in the books, it's um it's a little bit less cut and dry because there's there's a lot of other like scattered forces that converge and more people in the Hornburg. But yeah, like it's, okay. it's very much like, well, there's Amor, we're done. Yeah, but that's that's what I mean when I say that like they are literalizations of each horse essentially, and we get to see a little bit of of the charge happen actually happen, like just the crashing into it, which is basically a literalization of rays of sunlight destroying monsters in the dark. So it's oh man, it, Lord of the Rings right is the urtext for modern fantasy. It entirely and the fact that like some people have criticized obviously for being a little cut and dry but that makes sense for what it is and this is to me a great example of how a cut and dry monsters darkness shadows good guys sunlight sun rays literalized metaphor through breaking over the the hill and then crashing into them and just wiping them away and then we don't have to see quote unquote the cleanup that's not what's important what's important is that they arrived they're beating back the darkness. We don't have to see the whole thing like we saw the previous night. We just have to know it happened. <laughs> yeah, and that gets paid off in Return of the King with the Ride of the Rohirrim and the massive cavalry sweep, which we established. Like, you saw all this huge wave of horses riding out and towards Gondor. And we get the big speech on that hill. And because, again, the center of the shot is physical, it's horses, it's actual armor, it's actual spears, it's actual helmets. It feels physical. So when they come riding down, your brain is like, I know the things on the side aren't real, but this thing in the middle is, so it all flows together. So then when it smashes into, again, the physically there orcs, your eyes like, I know those aren't real, but they look and have the physical displacement of real, your brain's like, I can follow with this. So when the big stomp and movement kill come along and sweep everyone away, your brain's like, well, I know that horse is real because it, it's an actual horse. And all these factors blend together to trick your brain in a way that so often CGI just feels weightless. That does make me wonder, have either of you guys seen in recent memory Lawrence of Arabia? No. It's like maybe five movie. or six years ago? Okay. I just know that Lawrence of Arabia's 
like, actually not sure how far in the movie this is. I only saw it once when I was very young, but I happened to watch enough videos on online to just see people talk about it all the time. And the the horse charge in that, I think, is like one of the most actors in like a scene ever done. Like those are actual people on horses, like the literalized the whole way through. And so I'd be interested in like comparing something like that, which the only other movie I can think of to do something like that is maybe Ben Hur. And comparing that to how it looks in Lord of the Rings, I think you're totally right, Ulrich, and I'd be interested in comparing it to a similar scene that's literally no CG. <laughs> I would go, my go-to is uh, Waterloo, which is a movie about the Battle of Waterloo from, I believe, the 80s, in which they created the Battle of Waterloo with the exact number of men that were there. Ooh. Like, they had enough physical reenactors to do the battle and they reshape the battlefield and there's this epic cavalry charge that's shot from overhead and it is hands down one of the most epic beautiful shots ever done like in terms of battlefield stuff because again it's physically there and you don't have to be all physically there but what the lord of the rings proved if, if it's just 10 percent, your brain will carry it the rest of the way yeah, I mean, that kind of gets us into a different conversation entirely about how CG can be is used effectively, but you're not wrong. Yeah, and like even minor things like Viggo Mortensen having Aragorn's sword be an actual sword because he wanted the weight and how that, I don't know, maybe I just read into this, but the sword fights feel really good in this uh, movie because, again, it's physical stuff. It's stuff hitting stuff. Hmm. I, I would argue that like they're they're good because like you have this this perfect blend of you know for one thing Bob Anderson being one of the greatest like uh, stunt you know combat people in Hollywood like you know the the dude who you know like that's the dude who did the Princess Bride fight like you know that's the dude who did the Mask of Zorro so he clearly knows his shit. Which but sidebar? He and Jack... I just want to say the Princess Bride fight is literally what I thought of when Orc was saying that because to me. It's not the most accurate fight. It's not the most, like, choreographed, you know, spectacular fight. But I think there's good argument for why that fight is, like, top five one-on-one fights of any kind in cinema. And so if that's the guy behind it, good, good. Anyway, continue. Sorry. Yeah, and, and what's really awesome is that you feel him, like, really go in a different lane for this because he, what he and Jackson are doing are like, they don't do these extended swashbuckling duels. What they do is like just a slightly meatier, quicker, chunkier version. Like, you know, Aragorn and, and Lurtz in, in Fellowship of the Ring have like maybe the longest duel and still it's like really, really short compared to, you know, some of the, some of the stuff he's done. But, you know, that feels appropriate for the fact that they have gone into every corner of like, the cultures in this world and like okay how do they approach life which extends to how would how would we work weaponry into this okay so how does that function practically because we're going to be making a hundred swords of this style and we're going to be have people like we're going to have to figure some of this crap out and so like every time there's like combat it always like you said it feels crunchy and practical but it's also being handled by one of the greatest masters to ever add like narrative to screen combat and use it to express character. You know, what's really funny about that is that for anyone who studies HEMA, historical European martial arts at all, actual weapon fighting does not last very long, even no. if you're fully armored. A a proper fight between two 
let's say experts, not even masters, two experts might last a minute. Maybe. Because generally speaking, you're going to get in, and you're going to head a lethal blow, and they're going to move right on. So in movies that tend to go hardcore into realism, like The Duelist, which is a great movie, uh, but is a good example of making realistic sword fighting, or even fighting of any kind, look interesting to people who don't know why it should be interesting, can be tricky what you've, what you've just described is basically Jackson figured out a way to kind of blend the two. He's not going to say that the fighting is super hema-realistic, but the fact that the fights are not very long actually kind of lends itself to how an actual duel kind of is, while still having enough flourishes to be fantasy interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it also, and... like... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, you go ahead. It also continues the, like, approach of we're following this character and how they affect the larger battle, but we don't have time to watch, like, a, you know, five-minute crouching tiger hidden dragon duel every 30 seconds. You know, it, yeah. it's, like, it just keeps with, it's functional. It just keeps the pace up. And that's what I was going to say is we're not having duels. We are having battles. And battles of sometimes it's going to be a lot of back-and-forth fashion. Sometimes it's going to be, and I stabbed you and moved on, which is the other strength of these battles is they cut to humans just getting stabbed, like random Joes. And you're like, oh, yeah, people are dying. So, again, it kind of tricks your brain of my heroes are in danger because, well, Frank the Rohirrim just died and Bob the Orc just died. People are actually dying, which, again, is an important thing of you need to remind people that there are stakes and that these characters are dying. Otherwise, you just kind of check out of it, a la the Battle of Winterfell. There's an interesting word you just used, or that, that Brennan just used, though, which is functional. And what I, and that made me start thinking about Helm's Deep is probably the most functional battle ever, like as far as, as far as I can tell, because every sequence of it feels like it is functionally serving the, well, the pyramid that I described earlier. Even within the series, right, like, you can look at the skirmish at the end of Fellowship or the Battle of Gundor, and while they are very functional, they have a bit more, like, the bar is moved to give a bit more to character beats, things that, you know, like, okay, example, the I Am No Man sequence, which is wonderful, is exactly the kind of sequence that I think wouldn't gel well in the almost 100% functional purpose of Helm's Deep, so Gundor loses some functional to add some more character beat. I'm not saying that these are mutually exclusive, but I think there's some kind of push-pull going on there that I'm, I'm just now thinking of. There's that a lot of, great. like, culmination they're having to do in Return of the King. Like, that's having to pay off a lot of, like, multi-movie shit. Yeah, yeah. and that kind of goes in that uh, Return of the King is great in its battle because basically 90% of the movie is battle, but it's cutting between those big epic battles into Frodo and Sam's journey, into big epic battles into Frodo and Sam, into catching a breath and making you think that, okay, things are going to be okay now. Wait, why are the orcs chanting? Well, it's funny because that's I, I mentioned purpose earlier. Like, what is the purpose from a film perspective of this sequence, of this scene? And if we look at just Return of the King... The battle for Gundor, right, is this multi-layered sequence that's paying off all these ideas, that's demonstrating to us what Gundor as a location is through the use of battle. Compare that to the the final battle, as it were, the final charge, where they're like, all right, now we got to go get the forces of, of 
uh, Mordor out to give Sam and Frodo time. We don't get to spend a whole lot of time with that battle, really, comparatively, but that's because that battle isn't doesn't serve narrative purpose other than giving Sam and Frodo the opportunity to get where they need to be. That's not a negative. I'm just saying that's what's why it doesn't spend as much time there, and I think that's interesting because it's like, all right, the point of this battle is to allow Sam and Frodo to do what they're going to do. We say it very clearly. Aragorn says it very clearly. So while that's happening, we're going to focus on the point of this battle, what Sam and Frodo are doing. <laughs> yeah. So the last point I wanted to bring up in how these movies kind of cracked the perfect cinematic battle, I'm not fun with this one, but they use quote-unquote actual military tactics, again, if that makes any sense. Well, again, Helm's Deep does that very well, especially. I would argue all of these battles do, and by that I mean it's not just, and then everyone ran at each other and smashed into <laughs> each other, and there was lots of hitting that is typically what so many cinematic battles devolve to is just, and then they all climb together and mash in a big mud pit in the middle of the field. And it's like, oh, God, no. And I'm not saying that, you know, it has to be like an actual historical battle, because I think unless that's your thing and you understand what's going on, you don't care if they're drawing up skirmishing lines. Mm -hmm. But I think being able to look at it and go, hey, I can tell what they're doing. That makes sense. That makes the battle interesting to watch, which the battle uh, and the Black Panther is just, and then they all crashed at each other. And you're like, what is happening? Who, what's going on? Or even like the pushback when we had, again, uh, Battle of Winterfell, people were like, what is happening? What is the plan? What? There's no flow to it, you know? Well, what's funny about that is, again, looking at Helm's Deep and Battle of the Bastards, both do interesting things with tactics, which is Helm's Deep is a set of tactics arrayed against each other. We watch a Helm's Deep tactic that's a response to a Urukai tactic, and then back and forth. Again, the I mentioned earlier, like, oh, blow up the wall. That's an Urukai tactic. Now, what's the Helm's Deep response tactic to deal with that? Compare that to in the Battle of, uh, the, Battle of the Bastards, we've got one side using tactics to take advantage of the emotional lack of tactics on the other side. Literally, that's a battle where... Maybe there was going to be a tactic v tactic, but one side manages to basically piss off the other side so much that they throw away tactics, allowing them to use proper battle tactics to encircle them, and then they only get out because of a lucky cavalry charge they didn't expect. But there's an actually interesting thing going on there with, with tactics. So Yeah, no, they drew their enemy out of formation, and then they used their larger numbers to encircle them. Basic battlefield shit. But... It's basic battlefield shit that the layman can follow and go, I know what they're doing. That makes sense to me. Yep. And that's like, that's the biggest thing is, I mean, and those are the ones you remember. Like, I think everyone enjoys the big mud pit. Well, not everyone, but people generally enjoy the big mud pit battles, but they don't remember them or they don't remember the specific moments. Like if I asked you like, hey, can you break down the events of Helm's Deep. You can go, yeah, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You can kind of, you know, lay it out in your head. And that's a combination of how Jackson shoots these battles and with there being an actual flow to the battles. And it's like, it's a push, it's a push back and forth because it's the siege. Same thing with Gondor. You can kind of tell me, even though you haven't seen it in a while, you kind of know the events that happen. Whereas compare that to, you brought multiple times the Battle of Winterfell, I can remember how they set up the original lines because I remember seeing artillery and I was like, hey, cool, artillery. 
And, but then I remember automatically being like, why did you send out a cavalry charge into the night not knowing what they were going to do? You could argue it was a scouting thing, but I feel like that was too many soldiers for a scout thing. And after that, I don't remember anything about yes, the sequence. because really. it becomes a big jumbled mess. And it doesn't... And then you start getting this, well, this just doesn't feel believable. And yeah, you've lost your audience. That, and then you get the armchair journals and then the historic, uh, military history people are like, all right, now you know I'm going to tell you all things that are wrong. And it snowballs. Well, I will say that there's a very important difference between, no, no, that's not the right way to put this. I believe that those kind of sequences, right, there is film ways to make them work. Most of the time being somewhat accurate to an actual battle to a war historian's idea of how it goes will benefit them that's not always the case of course making the sequence feel real is more important than the sequence being real but that's not an easy line of demarcation as it were so yeah i would also argue that like jackson knows exactly when to cheat whenever like he's doing something like okay this is you know actual like valid battlefield tactics and we're going to approach this you know in a, in a very like strategic and thoughtful manner and then he knows when to like make it just a little bit metal because i mean there there is like i, I mean there's there's a danger to like coming off like a little bit dry if you dive too far into the weeds mm -hmm. but you know because jackson's having to paint with like large brush strokes he knows what to focus in on and so like you know of, of course there's like really cool like little you know, little things. He's like, oh, look, there, there is an actual whole line of elven archers, like, behind, you know, in, in the barrels. Like, oh, yeah, that's where you put archers. Holy shit. Movies never do that. That's really cool. Um, but but then, like... Missiles in back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but then, you know, it, it also knows, like, when to, like, zoom in. And so what what he's able to do is, like, um, he's able to, like, really match what what your kind of expectations are for this level of, like, okay... I know that we're in a, you know, society with these rules. And so, like, this is how, like, they're going to use their their strategic, like, resources. But then he's also able to just, like, make things a little bit extra in a way that just, like, not only benefit the, the like, fantastical trappings of the genre, but also, you know, it, it makes him be able to just kind of, like, spike the football in the end zone whenever you, like, really need to, like, Helm's Deep, the wall blowing up. Like, it didn't have to be that big, but it kind of did. <laughs> yes, because you're like, oh, they're going to win. They're going to, you know, make it through the night. And then the next domino falls. Yep. Which, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier with Axel's wave-breaking metaphor, that was the wave break. And now it's like, okay, and that leads to the next action. So it feels kinetic. What are some other, I'm trying to think of like, what other even recent scenes like that exist in in recent cinema and i don't i don't really think of much you know what i mean well, you can we... find a lot in like um in like asian cinema like there's there's a lot of like um i mean there's there's stuff like the bahubali movies and then you have like john woo's red cliff but like there's not a lot in hollywood that's doing like much More. in this lane we yeah. aren't doing historical epics anymore and the ones we do are pretty bad i mean the closest we get is the last duel has a pretty good, brutal fight at one point, but even then it quickly devolves to dudes wrestling in the mud. Yeah, and it's it's got like a very short, like, you know, five or ten seconds of like a, a horse, uh, uh, like a cavalry charge, and yeah. We yeah. kind of saw something in the Northmen, but the Northmen followed what I'm going to call the Battle of the Bastards methodology by following one soldier 
doing crazy stuff through the course of the fight. So Yeah, and that wasn't so much an epic... There wasn't an epic battle in the Northmen. No, I'm just saying, like, as far as even filming a battle between two sides. Now, in that case, one of the sides happened to be a village, but <laughs> yeah. it was getting ransacked. But I'm just saying, like, that doesn't... I can think of very few examples in recent cinema where there's even an excuse to to try to make this work. Like, there's this, the, the scenarios aren't happening in movies. And I don't know... The how... Outlaw King tries and does good and then descends to dudes wrestling in the mud. Um, yeah, I didn't the see less that said about barbarians, the better. Didn't see that. Um, was it the king did Agincourt, which degenerated to dudes wrestling in the mud? <laughs> Seems like you got an axe to grind about dudes wrestling in the mud. <laughs> I'm not having an axe to grind. It's just every medieval battle descends to dudes wrestling in the mud. And that's they had tactics, guys. <laughs> it wasn't it. always just. Uh, and if you're gonna do the mud wrestling out. thing, at least have the the decency to deliver some pile drivers. Like, come on, <laughs> at oh, least have fun with it. Damn it! I know. Uh, Game of Thrones: The Attack on the Caravan by the Dothraki. The attack on the caravan by the Dothraki. Yeah, where they're bringing back the gold, and they hear the screaming, and the Dothraki come over the hill, and then the Daenerys comes on her dragon. I only vaguely remember that. <laughs> oh, that one's a good one because, again, real horses, real people, you get the sense of impact of the charge. Well, it's funny because Game of Thrones as a property vacillated wildly between good action and bad action. A... Depends who was shooting it. <laughs> yeah. Well, like a good example, not to criticize uh, Nikolai... Oh, I can't remember. I can't pronounce his name properly. But the actor playing Jamie Lannister. But basically, anytime Jamie Lannister picked up a sword... The action was bad. <laughs> it just was. But whereas the battle with the sword of the, the the sword of the morning or dawn of the morning, whatever his name was, that was actually done really well. But that's probably because it understood that a lot of actual HEMA involves wrestling, like grabbing someone so you can stab them where you want to stab them. So yeah, but that's different between duels and fights, and they should be shot very differently, and they achieve very different things depending on your audience. Yeah, because if it's a duel, then yes, it's a lot of dudes wrestling in the mud because. Yeah, that's kind of what happens. But if it's a battle, no, that's how you get stabbed in the ass. So my my concluding thought are, and maybe this makes it sound easy, but it, it's not. I think it's not. Yeah, <laughs> the reason why Lord of the Rings works is because it focuses a lot on clarity, direct interaction and effect with its main characters, details, a certain level of practicality, and narrative through lines to the battle. So th those are the the points of our conversation that stick out to me. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about the secret sauce, which is the music. Oh, God. Like, half oh. the reason these battles work so well is that pulse-pounding fuck-yeah music that starts. Well, also, anytime we hear like, that... Oh, in we go. Anytime we hear that... That, like, that... That one... Oh, every, yeah. Whatever that is, anytime I hear that, like, yeah! Anyway. Yeah, the I fellowship thinking, theme. Yeah, thank yeah you. I was thinking the drums of Mordor when the Orakai are coming. It's just like, oh, shit's about to get real. Okay. Howard Short, man. Oh. Yeah. All right, that was my concluding thought. And <laughs> did either of you guys have concluding thoughts? Brendan? Um, I, I just, like, I, I think that, the you know, a huge part of what this was, like, Jackson took a lot, you know, because there's a lot that's, um, in the books of like the stuff that happens down to you know like he lifts some of the you know uh, the the back and forth um, from from the books but like he always knew like how to kind of like shape it 
because Tolkien doesn't write for for cinematic battles because he doesn't a he doesn't write for cinema because that wasn't you know I mean for fuck's sake he was a literature professor but um, also like his his just like view on war was like this very complicated thing and Ooh. Jackson's able to like take this clay and like shape it to just the right sort of like thing that you need for mm-hmm. the media. Not not to interrupt your conclusion, I apologize, but I gotta ask you real quick because I'll be very honest. I have not read the Lord of the Rings series. I tried once when I was young. I just never got around back to it. I do want to read it. It's just that the style is anyway. Not gonna get into that. But the point is <laughs> that you mentioned early on the fact that Tolkien actually was in war. He fought in the trenches of the Somme, if I remember correctly, um, uh, in World War One. And as someone who has read it. How would you say, because you're talking about how he describes battles, and we didn't, I don't think we touched at all other than you mentioning it offhand about how Tolkien's actual battle experience might have affected the way he writes. So what would you say about that? Well, I would say, well, he, he also, like, was a, like, a history, uh, a history buff as well. And so, like, he, he understood how medieval-esque warfare would have worked. But, yeah, the, the fact that he writes um, a lot of, like, broad strokes, like, tactical maneuvers of like okay here's here's where the army came into this and then they you know okay we've we've sent out this line to draw them in and here's where you know we taught them not to carry torches because you know we were using these hidden archers and like and then we draw them into this here so that like we've got and and like he does a lot of that um and then every now and then he'll like follow a character doing a thing like uh aragorn leads a sortie against the uruk high trying to batter down the gate in the in the book as well you know that's something that they they put in the movie you know the the you know the tossing the dwarf thing they added but you know that's still like he was still putting those like uh those markers on the map there for jackson to follow okay yeah sorry to sorry to interrupt your conclusion with it but i was just a point that i was like we didn't talk about this i wanted to mention it so yeah but but he's also like he also has this very complicated relationship because he clearly loves like the people who have to go through this shit. Um, like he, you know, he lost his best friends to the war. So like, you know, he, he knows what soldiers have to sacrifice, but he also hates the results of it. And so like, you have this interesting, like, it, like every victory, the way that he writes it is like melancholy in some way. Hmm. I wouldn't have thought that. That's interesting. Oh yeah. Like the, the whole, the whole speech that Thorne gives at the end of the Hobbit of like, if more people valued food and cheer and, you know, and song instead of hoarded gold. And it's like, you know, yeah, this, this, all this shit sucks. Capitalism is bad. War is terrible. It will make corpses of us all. I don't know why I'm surprised about that. Basically every writer who came out of World War One came out really sad about it. <laughs> Look at Hemingway and everything he did. <laughs> they didn't have a way to process their PTSD. And that's why it's always funny to me that Tolkien didn't believe in allegory. And it's yeah. like, my dude, you wrote a whole book just processing your trauma do not tell me the dead marshes are just a field of you know bodies from an ancient battle there i don't buy it there is an entire conversation we can have about authorial intent and the interaction of the audience with a piece of art (laughs) not for today we don't have enough time but there's a funny thing is 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 he suggested to his son christopher after world war ii dude you gotta write it'll help like that he clearly knew that he was like, if not deliberately doing allegories, like yeah, no, that 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 was part of it. Yeah, because because to be clear, we've hinted around this, but if you didn't, if you're listening, you didn't know, Tolkien was asked multiple times, "Is this an allegory for what happened in World War One?" He was like, "No." Now, 
whether you as an audience can interpret that, that's that's on you because of how art operates. But he, at least on the surface, and according to his interviews, did not intend for it to be a World War One metaphor. <laughs> I don't think it's a World War One metaphor, but I'm not going to believe that he didn't sprinkle some bits in. Like, I just, I don't buy that. that that's not how that any of this works. Like, just look at what happens to Frodo in the end. He's a poor shell-shocked little man that has to go away because he's seen shit and can't relate to his friends anymore. I hadn't thought of that. Well, and, and the scouring of the Shire is, like, the encroachment of, like, uh, the mechanized war machine onto, you know, places sure. that people were supposed to live and, like, you know, how entire cities would just get, you know, wiped off the map and well, stuff not, like that. Well, not just that. As you and I mentioned earlier, Brendan, the way that Tolkien seems to put forward is that the Shire is basically paradise. It's it's pretty much heaven up until they go off to like elven heaven. So the idea of the scouring of the Shire is almost like war ruins everything, even paradise. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, last things last. I wonder if they're going to be able to bring this to the Rings of Power because given what little I know and what little I can speculate about, there's going to be some big epic battles. <laughs> Are they going to be good big epic battles? Are they going to be, ah, oh, fuck, big epic battles? Well, they're going to be expensive, that's for sure. What, the what? whole thing's going to be expensive, and if anyone can afford it, it's fucking Jeff Bezos. What do we know right now about Rings of Power? Because I know very little. <laughs> uh, it's set during the Second Age. And a lot of nerdy Lord of the Rings deep divey stuff. I, I think it's supposed to like focus on like Sauron's rise and the the forging of the Rings of Power and his deception. Um, although like he he looks like you know angry Eminem in the photo that they're yeah. showing off. So they can saw <laughs> that. Is it him? They can confirm that's not him. Oh, that it's not. Oh, okay. His, that's one of his followers. He is not going to appear in the first season. Okay, but, but even so, like. I wouldn't have... Okay, I mean, I don't have the same kind of connection as some people, but I would be fine with that having been him because he's kind of yes. has this... To make a he very... He was a motherfucking angel yeah. in all but name. Yeah. He's allowed not to look like a big scary dude. Okay, no, no, no. He, my, my point is he shouldn't look like Eminem. Like, he, <laughs> should, he should look like Brad Pitt. Like, that dude yes. should look... Oh, that's fair. Look like, that, that dude should look like someone you want to climb across the room to get to. Yeah, yes. okay. So what, Ryan Gosling? <laughs> it's got all the yes, qualities. Something like that. And then he becomes evil because again, dude was an angel and he convinced the elves like, Alright, you've been in timeout long enough for the evil shit you did. We trust you again. Anyway, well Here's sure... our Wi Fi passwords. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we'll have things to say when Rings of Power actually comes up, but before we go way off the rails, I think that we should <laughs> officially cap the conversation and move to our suggestions, <laughs> right? Unless anyone's got final things to say. No, I'm re ready to go. Okay. Right. Well, then Suggestions of the Week is a, a thing. Well, actually, even before that, you can cut this out. Uh, to thank Brendan for coming and talking with us, we give him the special box that he can stand on where he can plug anything he wants to plug. Oh, great. Um, well, uh, I, I would like to plug the upcoming uh, School of Movies episode on Blade Runner 2049. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a, it's a like a, a friend, friends of the, friends of the show, um, and friends of mine who who are covering, um, they're they're re-releasing their 
uh, Blade Runner show from a couple years ago and doing Blade Runner 2049 and just like, you know, I, I think it's a good conversation wh- whether you like the film or not, just like looking at how it approaches like the the ways of being a Blade Runner sequel while also like trying to do its own thing. Um, and uh, you can also uh, find me on uh, occasionally at Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, uh, writing words about movies and stuff. Excellent. Well, now we can get onto the thing I jumped the gun on before, which is our suggestions of the week, which is just something that we've been into this last recent period of time that we want to recommend to people. I'll be really quick because I've already mentioned Cinefix several times. Go check out their YouTube series. They make the best top 10 counts on YouTube, period. All about movies and stuff. But also, quick thing, the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once has been re-released in the theaters, and if you somehow missed it on the big screen, go see it. It's still my favorite movie of the year. It's amazing. Yes, 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 yes. All right, I'll go next with a show that, well, I'll get that. I'm talking about Hack. Okay, what's Hack? I don't know if either of you have seen or heard about this show. I haven't seen, but I've heard, and I, and I know that it is uh, one of the, the the shows that there is worry about. I have yeah. not seen or heard. Hacks is a really, really, really good series on HBO Max that unfortunately may not still be on HBO Max at when this eventually releases. Fingers crossed, they're doing some weird shit over there. Uh, but basically, the premise is a young uh, comedy writer has a falling out and basically she sends out a problematic tweet and no one in LA will hire her. So her agent sends her to go write punch up jokes for an aging comedian in Las Vegas played by Gene Smart. And it is hilarious and incredibly well written because Gene Smart is this comedian of, you know, the seventies clashing with a newer, younger Gen Z comedian and they clash and there's a fair things, but it's this great for all the great jokes. It also kind of hits on what's the word I'm searching for here. Basically it dips into the unfortunate, ugly history that female comedians have had to put up with. And especially in showbiz, because this is an older comedian going, this is the business and the younger comedian going, no, it's not, that's not right. And the push pull relationship of these two, it's freaking hilarious. It is so well aborted. And I really, really, really hope that it stays on HBO Max and doesn't disappear into the black bag. It sounds like the kind of thing that's got to have Joan Rivers in his DNA somewhere. I, it, I would say the uh, Gene Smart's character is kind of modeled on her in a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. But, I'm just saying that your description made me think of Joan Rivers. So Yeah. No, and the whole first season's all in Vegas, and it has fun poking fun at the concept of Vegas and the casinos and all that. And yeah, no, it's a great show. All right, Brandon, you got a suggestion for us? Uh, yes, uh, I have a suggestion. Um, if anyone has not checked out The Princess on Hulu, uh, it is 90-plus minutes of sword fights, uh, like if Rapunzel was trying to kick the shit out of everyone on the way down her own tower. Uh, it is not, like, realistic really combat because it's a very like you know more sort of like wushu meets broadswords approach um but it it is like a lot of fun and it's uh, nice and r-rated and uh it's it's by a, a director that i'm uh, rather fond of their their previous film fury which is on netflix um but yeah uh just to go kind of like sort of in genre uh i, I would i would suggest that 
You know, I saw the trailer for that a bunch of times, and my first thought was literally, is this disenchantment in live action? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Kind of. All right. Well, Brennan, thank you again for coming and talking to us. Oh, my pleasure. Like I said, uh, my, my favorite story ever and uh, the the way it uses action is kind of like, uh, that's just chocolate and peanut butter to me. Yep. <laughs> so appreciate it. Thank you, guys. All right, Ulrich, take us in the outro. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things so that you not only catch the rest of Lord of the Rings month, because we have more. We're going to have a whole month packed full of just talking about Lord of the Rings, because why not? And uh, make sure you share this with your Lord of the Rings obsessed friends, because hopefully Rings of Power is good. And we are tweeting about how good it is and not tweeting about, boy, we sure were optimistic three months ago. <laughs> and wherever you're sharing, whether it be on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or the FiresideAlliance.com, thank you. And if you really want to help us grow, you can rate us on Spotify to tell us if we're doing a good job or a bad job. Appease the algorithm and it's all magic mastery. I don't know. <laughs> As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.